is music notes and more with your host, Jason Ginty. Billy Joel is a piano man that loves an uptown girl. Pearl Jam versus versus Aerosmith sneak booze into their very first gig. Izzy Stradlin quits Guns N' Roses and Bruce Springsteen cooks lasagna for some fans. All that and much more for the week of November 3rd. Let's take a look back in music history. This week back in 1964 during a Rolling Stones North American tour, they stopped in the city of Cleveland, Ohio where a 17-year-old fell from the balcony during the gig. Things didn't go well from there for the Stones. The mayor of Ohio banned the Stones and all future pop concerts, saying, quote, Such groups do not add to the community's culture or entertainment. Remember, this is 1964. Obviously, the Rolling Stones added a lot to community culture and entertainment over the years. This week back in 1983, Billy Joel was at the number one position on the charts with his song Uptown Girl, which stayed at the top of the charts for five weeks. It all began back when Billy Joel was on vacation in the Caribbean when he was playing the piano. He looked up and saw, wait for it, Elle McPherson, Christy Brinkley, and Whitney Houston, who at the time was more of a model than a musician. They were all standing around his piano and watching him play. Yeah, because this happens to everybody, right? Right. Well, Joel, of course, was very excited to have models sitting around watching him play the piano. And shortly afterwards, he ends up dating Elle McPherson, the supermodel. She was 19 at the time, by the way. Now, according to numerous interviews with Billy Joel, the song was initially written about his relationship with McPherson, but it ended up also becoming about his soon-to-be wife, Christy Brinkley. Now, both women being two of the most famous supermodels of the 1980s, and Billy Joel was with both. In a 1987 interview with Q Magazine, Joel said, quote, The fact that I can attract such a beautiful woman as Christy should give hope to every ugly guy in the world. You see, you'll want to learn to play an instrument. It was this week back in 1993 that Pearl Jam went to number one on the album chart with their album called Versus. It sold nearly a million copies in the first week, making it the highest sales in U.S. album history at the time. Now, to say this second album was highly anticipated would be a huge understatement. Their first album, 10, put them at the forefront of everything in rock and roll and mainstream rock. Now, here's the problem. Your sophomore album is the follow-up to prove that you are as good as your first album, which a lot of bands always fall short of. They call it the old sophomore slump for whatever reason. So there's a lot of pressure to record the second album. Now, Pearl Jam had the expectations to live up to of their fans. And, and here's the big problem, they were being called sellouts by just about everyone that cared about music in the day. From their friends, other bands, rock critics, everyone was calling them sellouts. They didn't like it. And to make things even more interesting, they brought in a new drummer. Now, the recording sessions for Verses weren't easy. There were all kinds of personality conflicts, and Eddie Vedder was particularly unhappy with the studio that had been chosen for the project. Now, here's how they kept loose before recording. They'd play softball every morning before they would go into the studio to record. Years later, Eddie Vedder would say that Versus was the album he enjoyed making the least. 
He says in part because of the site that was a very secluded and lavishly appointed studio that Pearl Jam were working in. He didn't like having all the niceties there. He felt so removed from what he was trying to tap into with his lyrics that he couldn't write any good lyrics in such a comfortable setting. He says, quote, hey, maybe the old rockers, maybe they love this stuff. Maybe they need the comfort and the relaxation. Maybe they need it to make dinner music. Well, in order to get himself into lyric writing headspace, Eddie Vedder would occasionally leave the studio and drive to nearby San Francisco, where he would spend several nights sleeping in his truck before returning to the sessions, refreshed and inspired. He also didn't like the fact that Stone Gossard would show up in a robe and slippers to the studio to rock out. Now, the song Better Man was rejected for inclusion on the album because it sounded like a hit. Most bands would never think of rejecting a song for having too much hit potential, but Pearl Jam, circa 1993, they weren't most bands. They were still freaked out and pissed off by all the criticisms of selling out with their first record. So they decided to hold the song for their next album called Vitology. Now, the album, Versus, was originally going to be called Five Against One, but at the last minute, it was changed to Versus. The new title was submitted so late in the game that the first several cassette pressings were released with the title Five Against One printed on the tape enclosures. Now, if you've got a cassette and you've got a versus cassette, you might want to go check it out. Could be worth some damn money. The album produced six singles and Pearl Jam refused to make a video for any of them. Now, remember, in 1993, MTV still mattered. They didn't make any videos. Versus was an album that still stands as one of the strongest records of their long and storied career. Uh, it was looser, heavier, and angrier than the 10 album. Versus found the band exploring all kinds of new sounds, resulting in acoustic-driven highlights like a daughter and elderly woman behind the counter in a small town, had some funky tracks like Rats and Animal, and the song Go, It Just Melts Your Face. This week back in 1974, Bachman Turner Overdrive went to number one in the U.S. with their song You Ain't Seen Nothing Yet. Okay, Randy Bachman, he's stuttering through the lyrics of the song. You know, you ain't seen nothing yet, right? You get it. All right, well, this was kind of a joke, him stuttering in the song. You see, they recorded a demo, and they recorded it uh, with Randy Bachman stuttering, and it was a private joke about his brother Gary, who had a speech impediment. Yes, brothers, they always get along so well, don't they? Now, they only intended to record it once, one time, with a stutter, and send it to only Gary, the brother, for a good laugh, right? Well, the record company heard the other eight tracks that they worked on tirelessly for the new album, and they said that the eight songs lacked the magic that would make a hit single. So Randy's under pressure in the studio, and he reluctantly mentioned that he had this other song sitting around, but it didn't really make any sense, and it was not intended to be used on the record. He said, look, quote, we have this one song, but it's a joke. I'm laughing at the end. I sang it on the first take. It's sharp. It's flat. It's bad. I'm stuttering. And, and I did a whole thing just for my brother as a joke. Well, management asked to hear it. And so they played the record label, the recording. Well, the label 
loved the damn song. Bachman agreed to rearrange the album sequence so the song could be added, but only if he could re-record the vocals first without all the stuttering. He thought that would be a bad idea, obviously, if it got out in public. Well, the record label agreed to the terms, but Bachman says, quote, I tried to sing it normal, but I ended up sounding like Frank Sinatra, and it just didn't fit. So they said, hey, why don't you just leave it as it was with the stutter? Bachman said, okay, but then he wouldn't let it be released as a single, so it didn't really make it to the radio. Radio stations started listening to that song and realized that song's the hit. Radio stations started playing the song, and finally, Randy Bachman said, okay, release it as a single, and ultimately the song ended up going to number one. This week back in 1974, Ted Nugent won a national squirrel shooting contest after picking off a squirrel at 150 yards with a bow and arrow. That's right, the guitarist also shot 27 other animals dead during the three-day shooting event. Now, here's something to keep in mind. Nugent, an avid hunter, he says he always eats whatever he kills. I'm sure the squirrel burgers were delicious. This week, back in 1971, Led Zeppelin released their fourth album. Now, the album had no title printed on the album and generally referred to as the Four Symbols album, the fourth album, or simply Led Zeppelin, Roman numerals I and V. It's going on to sell over 37 million copies worldwide. Now, the 19th century rustic oil painting on the front of the album cover was it actually a painting purchased by Robert Plant from an old antique shop in England? Now, there was good reason for the band to not have their faces on the cover. It was designed as their response to the music critics who maintained that the success of their first three albums was driven by hype and not talent. Well, that pissed off the band. So, they stripped everything away and let the music do the talking. People always talk about that massive drum sound on the song When the Levee Breaks, which obviously is massive. Well, first, let me explain how this works. There's an incredible playing by the late drummer John Bonham. They also recorded at a place called the Headley Grange, which was this spooky old house that was supposed to be haunted. Now, that's where When the Levee Breaks was recorded. They put the drums in this echoey stairwell area, and then they took and put more echo on it in post-production. Now, here's the cool studio trick. They also slowed it down in the mix, so it sounded really even more booming. And they had this huge reverb on it. It's almost physical when you listen to it, obviously, right? It crushes right through you. In fact, the only sound on the song, When the Levy Breaks, that's recorded in real or natural time is Robert Plant's voice. Everything else is slowed down just a little bit to make it even really heavier sounding. Also on the album is the song, Stairway to Heaven. Now, contrary to rumors, there are no backwards messages in the song, Stairway to Heaven even though that's what everybody thinks. Look, it sounds cool and it's a great legend, but all that is is just people talking and making stuff up. 
Look, all those rumors came out long after that record was done and the band had broken up. It was like the mid-80s when all these backwards messages, uh, discussions came out. What was happening was there was all kinds of religious backlash on video games and music and all kinds of stuff in the mid-80s. In fact, they had people reading satanic messages into everything, even Dungeons and Dragons. This was just one more target for those people. The band did use some backwards sounds just for like effects in the background. There were no messages in the song. It was in 1991 that rhythm guitarist Izzy Stradlin quit Guns N' Roses and was replaced by Gilby Clark. Now, Izzy Stradlin cited a lot of different reasons as to why he left the band, including a combination of Axl Rose's personal behavior and the difficulties of being around Slash, Matt Sorum, and Duff due to his newfound sobriety. The rest of the guys were definitely still getting wasted. Now, Izzy became delusioned with incidents such as the St. Louis riot and Axl Rose's constant tardiness to live shows, and he decided that leaving the group was the right decision. Keep in mind, Izzy Stradlin helped to write or wrote some of Guns N' Roses' biggest songs. Stradlin says, quote, Once I quit drugs, I couldn't help looking around and asking myself, is this all there is? He says he was just tired of it. He needed to get out. He says, when you're fucked up, you're more likely to put up with things you wouldn't normally put up with. So when Guns N' Roses, later in 2016, reunited, Izzy Stradlin was part of the negotiations to return to the band, but things fell apart. He was upset about the financial arrangement, so he did not return and become part of the reunion tour. This week back in 2005, there's a guitarist named Link Ray who passed away at age 76. Now the average music fan probably has no idea who Link Ray is or was. Well, he's pretty damn important to the whole grand scheme of things as far as rock and roll goes. In 1958, he had an instrumental hit called Rumble. He invented the power chord, the basis of modern rock guitar playing from thrash to heavy metal. Link Ray is actually the missing link in the history of rock guitar in that he is not often given credit for being the connection between early blues guitarists and the late 60s gods like Jimi Hendrix, Eric Clapton, Jimmy Page, Pete Townsend, and so on. Right? Link Ray was credited with inventing the fuzz guitar as well after he punched a hole in a speaker giving him a distorted guitar sound. Now, Link Ray was famous for his 1958 U.S. number 16 single called Rumble, which was banned on several radio stations on the grounds that it glorified juvenile delinquency. Now, this is pretty impressive considering the song had no lyrics. It was an instrumental. This week back in 1970, Aerosmith performed their first ever gig when they played at Nipmuc Regional High School in Menden, Massachusetts. Now, the brand new band got the gig because Joe Perry's mother worked at a nearby school and she knew someone at the school and helped to set it all up. Even at that early stage, Aerosmith were finding ways to get into trouble. Steven Tyler swiped a school t-shirt from the locker room and wore it on stage. Perry and Tyler apparently were even arguing on stage at their first gig, something that would go on 
basically forever to this day. This time, they were arguing over the volume of Perry's guitar. And look, try not to be too shocked here, but the guys also sneaked in booze to the gig as well. School officials charged 50 or 75 cents for admission to the gig, and the band was paid 50 bucks. Now, at the time, the band members were holding down part-time jobs. Tyler was working in a bakery. Now, a lot of people call the band Aerosmith the bad boys from Boston. Well, Aerosmith, of course, went on to great success to became the best-selling American rock band of all time, having sold more than 150 million albums worldwide. They also hold the record for the most gold and multi-platinum albums by an American group. So it doesn't matter where you start, it's how you continue to grow over the length of your career. This week in 2014, two very wealthy fans paid $300,000 to eat lasagna with Bruce Springsteen at his house. It all started when Springsteen was playing the annual Stand Up for Heroes event. He's playing an acoustic set, and then he offered the instrument, the guitar that he was playing, auctioned it off to the highest bidder. Now, when bidding reached $60,000, he threw in a guitar lesson, figuring, hey, let's keep this going. Well, someone offered $250,000 for the personal guitar lesson. At this point, Springsteed offered up a lasagna dinner at his own house, a ride around the block in the sidecar of his motorcycle, and the shirt off his back. All the money went to the Bob Woodruff Foundation, which helps injured servicemen and their families when they return home. A very, very cool thing. I can't even imagine sitting around at Springsteen's house, wearing his shirt, and eating his lasagna. You know what? 300 grand? Totally worth it. It was back in 2016 that Canadian singer, songwriter, and poet Leonard Cohen died at the age of 82 at his home in L.A. Now, you, Cohen's not exactly a household name when it comes to music, but you'll recognize this work. Remember the song Hallelujah? Yeah, it was made super popular by Jeff Buckley, and it's been covered thousands of times ever since. Well, it all started out when he became a novelist during the 1950s and early 60s. He didn't launch his music career until 1967 at the age of 33. Hallelujah was a song written by Cohen, originally released on his album called Various Positions in 1984. It found a lot more popularity through a recording by John Cale. Then Jeff Buckley took John Cale's version, switched it up a little bit more, and then you've got a very cool song that it seems to get sung at funerals, weddings, and everywhere today. Rest in peace, Leonard Cohen. This week back in 1967, the first ever issue of Rolling Stone magazine was published in San Francisco. It featured a photo of John Lennon on the cover. Now, he wasn't dressed as himself. He was dressed in army fatigues because he was acting in a film at the time called How I Won the War. They used a picture of him with an army helmet on. Now, the first issue of Rolling Stone magazine cost 25 cents and, wait, had a free roach clip attached so you could hold your marijuana cigarette while you read it. Yes, can you imagine doing that today? In fact, we probably will get there sometime in the near future. Now, the name of the magazine was compiled from three significant sources. The, Muddy's, the Muddy Waters song, called Rolling Stone, the first rock and roll record by Bob Dylan, and the band The Rolling Stones. Now, the decision to put John Lennon on the cover 
was hastily made literally just two days before going to press. Now, of course, it was a very defining cover because it encompassed the music, movies, and politics that the magazine was going to be all about. And John Lennon, of course, was on the cover many times after that. It was in 1969 that Simon and Garfunkel recorded what would become their signature song, Bridge Over Troubled Water. You can hear it, right? It's in your head. You know the song. It's a great song. Well, Paul Simon wrote the song, but he wanted Art Garfunkel to sing it. Well, Art thought Paul should sing it because he sounded better singing it, and he wrote the damn song. But Paul insisted that Art's voice was better suited for the song. So it was a decision, of course, that Paul would later say he regretted. He says that he remembers sitting on the side of the stage watching Art sing Bridge Over Troubled Water during concerts and the crowd going nuts at the end and the whole time he's sitting there doing nothing thinking, man, that's my damn song. (laughs) I guess it would eat at him, right? Well, at the suggestion of Art Garfunkel and uh, their producer, Simon wrote an extra verse and a bigger ending to the song. Now think about it. The final verse, you've heard it, was written about Simon's then-wife, Peggy Harper, who had noticed her first gray hair. So the line, sail on, silver girl, near the end of the song, it doesn't refer to a drug abuser's hypodermic needle, as people have said. It simply refers to Paul Simon's ex-girlfriend's gray hairs. Now the song going on to win a bunch of Grammy Awards, Uh, including Grammy Award for Record of the Year and Song of the Year. Bridge Over Troubled Water has been covered by over 50 artists. And you definitely want to check out Elvis Presley's version. It's awesome. And Willie Nelson does a nice job with it as well. It was this week back in 1973 that the album Piano Man was released by Billy Joel. It was his second and his breakthrough album. Now, despite Piano Man being universally recognized as Billy Joel's most popular track of all time and his signature tune and being sung at karaoke night around the world constantly and the great sing-along to a bunch of drunken people in bars on a jukebox, it was not actually that big of a hit when it was first released in 1973 it never reached higher on the charts than number 25 during its initial release. Well, the now classic recording only began to reach serious levels of fame when people rediscovered it following the success of Joel's 1977 album called The Stranger. Now, the song was inspired by Joel's experiences playing at the Executive Room, a piano bar in L.A., He worked there for about six months in 1972 after his first solo album called Cold Spring Harbor tanked. Now, the characters in the song are based on real people Joel encountered while working at the executive room. Joel played under the name Bill Martin, which explains why the patrons in the song call him Bill. Martin is Billy Joel's middle name. Billy Joel says he has no idea why the song became so damn popular. He says it's like a karaoke favorite. The melody is not very good. It's very repetitive. And while the lyrics are kind of like limericks, he says he was shocked and embarrassed when it became a huge hit. He says, but all my songs are like my kids. And I look at that song and think, hey, my kid did pretty good. 
Music Notes and More is written, recorded, produced, and hacked together by me, Jason Ginty. Be sure to like, share, and tell the world that you love listening to this podcast. I do appreciate it. Be sure to follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.